and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. It's good to see everybody here. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 7. And uh, as we get, begin today, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, I love your singing. Uh, this is a singing church. Don't stop that. Don't stop that uh, at all. And uh, as I get all my accoutrements together, as we get ready to worship through the preaching of his word, I'm excited to be a part of this place. Uh, as Brother uh, Jerry read our text from John 7, uh, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make these words just really come to life for us. Uh, on our part today, let's lean into the text. And Jerry gave us the clue in and how to do that. Take notes and then ask questions of the text of what God shows you. Ask God to reveal what Jesus is talking about, how we can apply this. We'll pick it up in our story today. You remember in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Let's get some perspective so we can hear this like a local would at that time. So Jesus is teaching on the Temple Mount during this big festival, and there are two big groups listening to him. One group a lot larger, and that's the common Jew- Jewish folk that are there. There's thousands of them there. Most of them have probably seen or at least heard about Jesus and his claims of divinity, heard his teaching. Many have experienced miraculous signs firsthand. They had seen, uh, you know, deaf people. Here and blind people given sight. Listen, that just didn't happen in the ancient world at all. Uh, the lame, people who couldn't walk, suddenly are, are made to be able to walk, and and the dead raised to life. That just doesn't happen. Doesn't happen in our time. So many, many other signs as well. John says at the end of his book, uh, he doesn't record them all because it would be more than he could record. And although those signs were clearly amazing, supernatural, meaning that. They were signs that only God could do, right? These miracles, it was Jesus' teaching, his words that had caused people to believe that he was the Christ. And for some, that believed he was the devil. You see, we said a couple of weeks ago, he can't be just a good man. Jesus just doesn't leave that open to us. He claims to be God or he's not. They had never heard a rabbi teach like this man before. He taught with authority He he taught something different than any other rabbi they had ever heard in the past. And we know that the common people were at odds, not just with religious leaders, but with each other at the same time. Some had believed he was the Christ, some hadn't, and some were simply listening and contemplating who Jesus is, that he was communicating to them. The second group was not common at all. That was the religious leaders uh, and, and now if you're not familiar with how the government worked at that time in that first century, here's what it looked like. It might help you to know that the Romans occupied the land. The army was there. They were occupying force in Israel and particularly in the city of Jerusalem. And although the Romans could step in and run day-to-day operations, they chose not to. The, what they preferred to do is let the Jewish leaders lead the people. It's kind of rule through proxy, if you will. The Jewish religious leaders were uh, certainly religious, but they were also civic leaders as well. 
they taught doctrine from the scriptures, uh, but in the civil sense, like running the nations, uh, uh, that's what they did. After all, the Romans were mainly interested in, well, money. They just, as long as you paid your taxes and they were heavy, you were fine. The, there was no separation of church and state. That didn't begin until 1776. Uh, here in the United States, no other country has had true separation of church and state like that. Back then, you had to worship and teach within these leaders' specific boundaries. Uh, and this was important. So the main group of religious leaders was made up of 71 member council that kind of worked like the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, all rolled into one. It was called the Sanhedrin. These 71 guys ruled everything. You could say uh, that all the members of the council were chief priests. There was an actual chief priest, but you could say all the the priests of that were the, the chief priests among the people. And then they had this small but effective uh, temple guard that weren't Roman guards, but they were well-armed. They were the muscle. They were the goons that carried out all of the the bad policies of these religious and civil leaders. So these guys are the muscles, the enforcer of the law. Now, because of the Roman occupation, these religious leaders got to keep their jobs, money, money, power, prestige, if, if, if they were able to keep the peace. The Romans provided the military so that no one would invade, but they had to provide the peace, keep the Jews from rioting, from calling on the Romans to be kicked out. Now, the Jewish religious leaders had wide-ranging power. It's hard to understand today. Um, They could keep you from buying and selling. They could keep you from doing your business. They could keep you from planting your crops. They could keep you from uh, going to the temple. Uh, They could keep you from uh, not only selling your goods or buying your goods. They could keep you from traveling to the place. But what they could not do legally under the Romans was put people to death. That's why you see them going to Pontius Pilate later on to have Jesus killed, right? They couldn't put people to death. death. But if they could get the crowd worked up into a frenzy and the crowd stoned the person to death, well, that was a different matter. Their hands were clean. You see what we're saying? You you saw that with the uh, apostle Stephen early in the book of Acts. Uh, They whipped the crowd into a frenzy and, and Paul was there whipping them into a frenzy before Christ saved them. Now, as Jesus is teaching to this large group of Jewish people uh, in the thousands, some of these chief priests are listening in. They're standing right there, and the officials, their muscle, the temple guards standing with them. Now, we said this last week, there's a tension between the leadership and the big crowd. Like we just said a moment ago, the crowd of common folk, they're listening to Jesus teach, Some of those believed, some didn't, some were questioning. But if you look closer, there's even a tension with inside the Jewish leadership as well. Some were starting to believe, but they weren't public yet. So now here's why we just set all of this up. Who the players are, because we read in verse 25, look in your own Bible or up here. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 
And he, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That's the question. Common folk begin to ask obvious questions like you should. Can this be the Christ? That's the question that hangs in the air. Jewish people have been brought up with the teaching, one teaching that there was one God and that God himself would send the Christ, or we can also say the Messiah means the same thing, Christ or Messiah. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the people as well as the Jewish leaders have been waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, to appear and set up his earthly kingdom right there. So you can hear the uh, internal debate that these common people are having. Could this be the Christ? And if so, why are the leaders trying to have him killed? It's a good question. Now just something interesting. Skip back just for a moment to verse 19. The second half of verse 19. Jesus said to the religious leaders right before all what we're preaching on here is look at this. He says, why do you seek to kill me? It's a good question. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The religious, uh, Jesus had just said to the religious leaders, I know you're trying to kill me. That's a pretty bold statement. And the leaders replied, the crowd says, you have a demon. Nobody's trying to kill you. In other words, the Jewish leaders were denying what Jesus was accusing them of. But then right here in our passage for today, we see at least some of the common people had caught on to this idea that the religious leaders were actually trying to have Jesus killed. So they were talking to the the common people going, man, you should stone this guy to death. So let's look at verse 25 and 26 again in John 7. These three questions that the crowd asks in this passage Let's hit two of these right away fast. And then we'll hit a third question a little harder uh, in a few minutes or a lot harder. Okay, in verse 25, we see the crowd ask two questions. What are they? Here they, uh, here they is. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? That's the first question. They're asking, aren't the religious leaders trying to kill this man? I mean, it's apparently pretty well known that they're trying to kill him. The apostle John doesn't answer the question directly because the answer is obviously yes. Yes, they're trying to kill Jesus. Everybody knows it. And there's at least a few in the crowd that know that to be true, but it sounds like a lot of people too. But the crowd, they're confused because of this. Apparently the leaders don't try then to stop Jesus from teaching. So Jesus just keeps teaching. They're going, they're trying to kill him, and yet he doesn't stop them, uh, stop him from teaching. So the crowd's confusion leads them to ask the next question. Question two, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now, this might be confusing, so hang with me. At least on the surface of the situation, what's the answer to the question? The answer is no, they have not concluded that Jesus is, tr- is the Christ, he's the Messiah. They don't believe that. Why? I'm talking about the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders don't want to know. They want to protect their life. 
their position, their power, their influence, their, let's just be honest, money. There's an old saying that goes like this. None are so blind as those who will not see or so deaf who will not hear. But apparently the crowd, at least a few of them, think that some of the religious leaders might be thinking Jesus is the Messiah. I actually think some of them were, and they were still trying to kill him. Keep the Messiah from coming because they would lose power. Now, we're not told why yet, but there's a clue in this question that we'll get to. Uh, but you'll remember Nicodemus, the, the chief teacher of Israel, had come to Jesus under the covenant cover of night in John chapter 3. Remember back when we studied that, asking the question, who can get into the kingdom of heaven? In other words, how can you be saved? Now, here's what we're saying is that even in that 71-member council of the Sanhedrin, there are at least a few that might be thinking, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. Like they're secret followers. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who helped Nicodemus prepare Jesus' body after he's crucified, was on this council. Now, the crowd has asked a couple of key questions here in trying to understand who Jesus is. But there's a couple of people in the crowd that have come to a different conclusion. They don't believe Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. By the way, what some in this crowd are saying is that is not in the scriptures or what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. They're simply not true what they're saying. But a faction of rabbis at that time had come up with this false doctrine that the Messiah, the Christ would simply appear like out of nowhere uh, and, and no one would know where he's coming. He just kind of appears. Now we see this today among most people that call themselves Christians. They base their doctrine on, uh, uh, on people's ideas or analogies about God instead of what is actually written in the scripture. It's a huge problem in the church today. Or some will take one verse out of context and build an entire belief system on one verse. Uh, and, and that's dangerous. But if they would simply read the verse in context and understand it, dive down deep, they would see that much of what they believe the Bible says actually isn't in the Bible at all. This is why a huge part of discipleship, when we talk about the Bentry discipleship, growing in our journey to be more like Jesus, a big part of that is learning to read and study the Bible in groups and on our own. So that false teachers can't just pull the wool over our eyes. Can I just be really transparent with you? It doesn't matter if you want to or not, I'm going to be. One of the biggest frustrations pastors have as shepherds of the body is when Christians simply refuse to read and learn what the Bible really says and they just rely on what other people tell them it says. I mean, it's hard to know a counterfeit gospel, a false doctrine, if you don't know what the real one looks like. You just don't know. You've never seen it. A group of people in the crowd reveal they haven't studied well, so they say, well, no one will know where the Messiah comes from. That thought is simply not in the scripture anywhere. 
Here's the thing about lies. The most believable lies are the ones that are closest to the truth. They have an element of truth, but in the end, they're lies. So Jesus addresses them in verse 28, at least the first half of verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you you know me and you know where I come from. This is important because Jesus tells them, here's the true part of what they're saying. There is some truth. You know me. You know where I come from. People knew that he came from Galilee, a little town in Galilee, no account town. They knew that he had been a carpenter. By the way, when we say carpenter, don't think wood so much because they just didn't have a lot of wood. So they used stone. When you hear Jesus as a carpenter, he's a skilled construction worker. He's, he's not an educated upper class man. The dude works for a living. He's got big muscles. They knew what, that Jesus was Mary and Joseph's son. And they, they had a bunch of other brothers and sisters. They knew he was as poor as dirt. They knew he didn't, he didn't have any kind of education beyond the basics. They also knew that he, had, that he taught with authority and power. And they had seen miraculous signs performed. So Jesus says, all of that's true. You know me, you know where I come from. Jesus says it's all true, but then Jesus adds the part they didn't really yet know or understand. Look at the second half of verse 28. Jesus says, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. You remember when Jesus, or when God tells Moses his name, he goes, I am. This is another way to say it. He is the truth. There's no other truth. There's not truths, plural. There's truth. He said, the one who sent me is truth. He's saying it's God and him you do not know. Now, let me see if we can paraphrase what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, you know me. You know my family. You know where I come from. You know me. But the real truth that you do not know is that I don't come on my own accord And you also don't realize that I've been sent by the one who is the truth. And you might think you know who I am, but you do not know the one who is true. You do not know the Father, God. Now go back to the idea of identifying a counterfeit for a second. How do you know what a counterfeit is? By knowing the real thing. Or you could say you can't spot a fake when you've never seen the real thing. So he adds this in verse 29. I know him for I come from him. He's talking about the father, the truth. And he sent me. Jesus says, I know him. I know the truth. And not only that, I come from him. And he is the one that I come from the truth. So remember at this point, Jesus is speaking mainly to the crowd and the ones who were saying Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because we won't know where the Messiah comes from. And we know this guy, we know where he's coming from. That's who Jesus is addressing. But the religious leaders are standing right there as well. They're listening in, hoping that Jesus will screw up, speak some kind of blasphemous thing, and that they could arrest him or whip the crowd into a frenzy and have him stoned to death. So when Jesus says, I know him, and I, I come from him, and he sent me, that's something that you can't unsay. Because that's like a 
drop the mic and walk away moment. But Jesus doesn't drop the mic. In fact, what he says just kind of hangs in the air. Well, these religious leaders, they have to act. Because you get it. If you're a religious leader here, if they don't act and the people see them not act against Jesus, then it's a tacit endorsement that Jesus is the Christ. If they don't want that. So we read in verse 30, this is fascinating. So they were seeking to arrest him. Now the apostle John doesn't tell us much about the details here. But what he shares is fascinating. I love this. Because the religious leaders and their goons, the temple guard, apparently act. They try to seize him. And they're right there. They try to arrest Jesus. And what happens next, we're really, really not sure. It says in the second half of verse 30, but no, but no one laid a hand on him. Now, two things that John points out for us here. First, something happens that Jesus simply slips away. Did he slip into the crowd just behind someone? There's so many people they couldn't find him. Or did he hide himself from their sight like a little miraculous sign? Like, whoop, you know, he just made himself disappear. We don't know. In any case, it's at least, it's that last line of verse 30. Look at it there. Uh, that really speaks the deep truth. Here it is. Because his hour had not yet come, no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. That's our second big thing. You see, it doesn't really matter if Jesus hid himself miraculously like he just made himself invisible or simply slid into the crowd because ultimately, ultimately, the sovereignty of God is displayed here that they couldn't arrest him. And it was not yet time for Jesus to be crucified. He had to fulfill all the prophecy. So we see Jesus once again follow God, the Father's timing of what he did and when he did it and where he did it. So that's our model right there. That's our model. It's how we live our lives. But the crowd is something new now that they continue to discuss who Jesus is. So we read in verse 31, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, this is a great question. Let's make sure we understand it. This is a way of reasoning back in the old school time when classic reasoning worked. It doesn't, so, uh, doesn't work so much these days, but listen, this is the third question that we want to look at. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, let's think about that question. Why are they asking it, and why are they asking it this way? Sometimes you can tell something is by saying what it's not. It's almost like asking here, like this guy has done all this stuff, this has to be the Messiah, right? Or you could ask it this way. If someone else appears and claims to be the Christ, what else would he do that this guy hasn't already done? Or even, guys, guys, can we just all agree that this is the Christ based on what he's taught so far, his miraculous signs he's performed? No one else could do this kind of stuff, right? Right? But this is the way he, they phrase the question. When the Christ appears, 
Will he do more signs than this man has done? However you phrase the question, the answer to this is no, he will not. Which means that Jesus is the Christ, right? The conclusion has to be from their question that Jesus is the Christ and that we should believe on him as Savior and Lord. No one else would do more than this. He's fulfilled all this. So let's pause for a moment. Let me ask you, do you personally believe Jesus is the Christ? If not, what else would Jesus have to do, at least in your mind sitting here right now, to convince you? You hear me? What else would Jesus have to do in your mind to convince you that he is the Messiah? Could Jesus then even do enough to convince you that he is the Christ. Could he? Let me see if I can help with this. Let's, uh, let's break this down. Let's think about what Jesus has done so far. Cool beans? Look at this. Number one, Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies and the law concerning the promised Messiah. Jesus has fulfilled all, total, the Old Testament prophecies and the law concerning the promised Messiah. There's none that he has not fulfilled. By the way, this is straight from Jesus. Listen to how he puts this in his words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You remember the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. You remember that? Near the end of John the Baptist's life, as he lay in prison, he is suffering, he's facing death, In the darkness, he begins to doubt the purposes of his life. He had declared Jesus the Christ, but now he's doubting. Was this Jesus really the Christ? He began to doubt it. So John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask outright, Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for, or should we look for another? Listen to Jesus' response. Skip over to Matthew chapter 11 for just a minute. Verse 4, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't answer the question from John, does he? Not directly. Rather, what he does, look at this, he points John's disciples to think and compare back to Scripture, the Old Testament, to think about what the promised Messiah would do. Jesus is essentially saying, look, based on the evidence, guys, how I'm living my life, am I fulfilling the scriptural prophecies or not about the Messiah? Jesus could have just said, yes. But what he says here is, is a lot stronger, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying, look at the Old Testament prophecies 
spoke about the coming Messiah. I'm fulfilling those. Flip over to the Old Testament for just a second. Let's take a look at one instance of this where Jesus, of, of many instances where Jesus fulfilled. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. Here it is. Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. He's talking about the coming Messiah. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah to John the Baptist and his, uh, uh, his disciples. He says, all who believe the fulfillment of Scripture and the law. He says, have I done that? In, in how Jesus lived, what he said, his miracles and his teaching, has he fulfilled it? Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, to the guys there coming to see him, tell John, look at the evidence of how I am fulfilling all of what the scripture has said about the Messiah. Because look, he even fulfilled all Old Testament prophecies to, to the specific dates, the details of his trial, his suffering, the way he died, certainly his death, and then his resurrection. Between now, for you and I, between now and the end of John, we'll see more of those prophecies fulfilled as we study them. So we hear the question echo in our ears. If someone else came and claimed to be the Christ, will he do more? To, uh, will he, he, will he uh, fulfill the prophecies more than anyone else? Here's another thing that will help us believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has convinced millions that he is God who has taken on human flesh and that he has answers to life's deepest questions. Jesus has convinced millions, both now and through the centuries, that he is God who has taken on human flesh and that he has the answers to life's deepest questions. I know there's a lot. Write it down. Now, when Jesus came to Israel, for centuries, for centuries, they had believed, they had believed in the one thing called the Shema, the Jewish people. The Shema from the law of the Old Testament that said this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. By the way, whenever you see a capital L-O-R-D, that's referring to the word Yahweh. Yahweh. So he's saying, hear, O Israel, the Yahweh, our God, the Yahweh is one. It's not many gods, it's one God. I mean, for Jesus to claim he is the one true God, well, that was very hard to swallow for a Jew. Now, if Jesus had come into the Greek world or Egyptian society or even Roman, I mean, they had hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of gods they worshiped. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Those are not gods. I'm the one true God, God the Son. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Peter in Matthew 16, 16, had called Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And remember Thomas 
in John 20, verse 28, when he encountered the risen Jesus after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Thomas cried out, my Lord, my God. The apostle Paul said of Jesus in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, I added the word Jesus to know what we're talking about. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. Notice the capital S, the Holy Spirit. Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In other words, his resurrection from the dead declared that he is the risen son of God. For more than 2,000 years now, people have believed they have followed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Millions now believe in their heart. They confess with their mouth and with their lives that Jesus is who he claims to be, the son of God. And certainly secular opinion of the world is against belief in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Yet for those who have studied his life and words and have been made alive by the the power of the Holy Spirit through those words, those are the ones that have answers to life's hardest questions. Let's ask again, like these people listening to Jesus teach. When the Messiah comes, will he convince more people of his identity than Jesus did? Number three, Jesus began the greatest social changes the world has ever seen. Jesus began the greatest social changes the world has ever seen. Now, you might be thinking, Paul, Paul, that's kind of an overstatement, right? But it's not. It's not even close. Think about this with me. Jesus came into a world that thrived on death as entertainment with gladiators killing each other and slaves and slaves fed to lions and people clapping. Oh, that was good. Children that were unwanted were simply tossed out onto the trash heap and left in the elements to die. Slavery was so common around the world at that point. You could, if you could not pay your, egg, uh, your regular bills you were sold into slavery for your debt. Or if your country could not defend itself, you were taken into captivity, you were a slave. So understand this, women had no rights whatsoever. You just had no rights. Most of the time, except for Israel, they did. Most of the time in Roman society, women did not have a name. They were just not ever given names. Why would you give a woman a name, they would think. Before they were married, they went by their father's name, or when they were married, they went by their husband's names. Men could have as many wives as they wanted. Children, well, they had even less rights than women. Child labor, sexual slavery was the norm for children. It was common, really expected of little kids to satisfy the needs of adults. But if you look at history, what changed all that? Jesus. It wasn't a government social program. But love expressed in care for people and giving them dignity. That everyone is created in the image of God. That human life is valuable. 
that wave of caring for people moved as the gospel moved around the world. As the gospel spread, caring for people spread. And whenever you see real believers in Jesus, you see people caring for those who are hurting. This is what Christians do. This is what we've done since the time of Jesus. We love people, especially the ones that are unlovable. I mean, you may not realize this. Schools, hospitals, caring for orphans, caring for widows, caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, caring for the dying, that all started with Jesus. And if you don't believe me, you just check history books. Before that, it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. In fact, if you ever study Christian history, the movements of God throughout history, you'll see an outpouring of love and caring for people. You see it today in that it is far and away mainly Christians fighting to save babies from the scourge of abortion. It's not only, but far and away, it's Christians fighting for that. Through adoption. You saw it in the Civil War. The U.S. Civil War. It was abolitionist. Starting in the 1700s. And continuing through the 1800s. That fought to to, uh, abolish slavery. It was mainly Christians. It came from Christians. And even today it's mainly Christians. That fight to rescue women and children from sexual slavery. To care for mothers who don't think they care for themselves or their babies. To help them choose life for themselves and their babies. Folks, believers in Christ Jesus, we are the hands and the feet that share the love of Christ by serving those that are hurting around the world. So we ask the question again. If the Messiah comes, will he impact society with more love than Jesus did? We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and it's worth reminding ourselves of it, of it again, but because this is the, uh, every Christian in the house today, this next one. Jesus has set free the souls of millions from the slavery of sin and death. Jesus has set free the souls of millions from the slavery of sin and death. Now remember... When Jesus, as he began his public ministry, he went to the synagogue, the local synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, where everyone knew him. And he read from the Gospel of Luke. We read it in the Gospel of Luke. He read from Isaiah. We read it in Luke four seventeen. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. (coughs) He has sent me (coughs) to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now this passage in Isaiah. Had been written 750 years before Jesus reads it in that synagogue. That day. 
Jesus reads this and basically says, look guys, starting today, I'm going to do all of this. And what is he going to do? Well, there's two phrases I want us to zero in on with that, that we want to look at here and do our best to try to understand those phrases. What Jesus is claiming about himself in the text of Isaiah. We look here in Luke 4.18, the second half. Look what he says. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You should star this in your Bible. Underline this in the Bible. Who is it that Jesus is referring to that sent him? God the Father, right? Who are the captives he's referring to? Well, Jesus proclaimed this, that there were many who were physical slaves when he proclaimed this in captive, captivity, in chains, literal chains. Many kept literally in the dark at night with uh, no light. I mean, if you had slaves, why give them any kind of a candle? That costs money. So you just kept them in the dark, locked up in chains at night until the slaves saw the light when they would wake up, when they would pull them out of the hole. And there are times in history, I know this is hard to believe, that as many as half of the world's population was enslaved to the other half. But using that picture, Jesus is saying, the truth is that many more are in chains than half. He's saying, all men and women are held in chains of sin. They're slaves. Bound by sin, meaning they're not free. They're bound. They're chained up. And, and they, they're there in the dark. They can't see. Now, what does that mean to be held in the dark of night with chains of sin? Now, listen close. There are many in this room that can tell you exactly what that means because they have been held in the dark with chains of sin and shame. They don't want to come out in the dark. They're ashamed of it. People held captive, listen to me, by drink. People held captive by pride, by drugs, by self-harm, by cutting, by anorexia, by coveting. Some of you have been held captive by pornography, by sexual sin. Some of you have been held captive by gender confusion. Chains of anxiety, chains of worry. Worry about what other people think of you. It rules your life day and night. Worry about money, chains of complaining. Some of you are held in chains of complaining. Listen to me. Complaining is not a spiritual gift. Just saying. Some of you have been held in chains of lying. You can't stop lying. You don't know what it is. Some of you have been held in chains of adultery, fornication, sex outside of the one man, one woman marriage relationship. There's people in this room that could tell you what it's like to be held by chains of sin. In the dark, no hope. There are people listening to this right now that have been set free from all of that and much, much more. Jesus has set them free. Jesus says he comes to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. Now watch this. Jesus has come to break the chains of sin. We get that, right? But why would Jesus say that he would give sight to the blind here? 
Why does he say that? This is even bigger. So hang on to this. Because if you're blind, it doesn't matter how much light is in the room. You can't see it. It's all darkness when you're blind. This is one of those times you can write on this Luke 18 B. You can write dog, capital D-O-G. Doctrines of grace. It's right here, baby. I told you it's all over the scripture. That Jesus can give us sight the knowledge of who he is as Savior and Lord so that we can believe, so we can see our sin, that you go, what in the world is this mess that I'm in? Jesus gives sight that the light shines because he brings light to our dungeon. He gives us the ability to see the light even in the midst of our mess. The doctrine of grace is that he gives us the ability to see the light of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, Paul, be a little bit too dramatic here. But my friend, I don't think so. You see, this is not my first time around the block. I've been a pastor a long time. I saw the light because he gave, he gave me the ability to see my own sinful wickedness. I could see that my sins held me fast. Jesus gave me spiritual eyes to see my sin, to see my hopeless state, to see that I was an enemy of God. I often talk about this, but I go, man, there's this, when I trained younger preachers, I go, there's this like this third rail of preaching you do not want to touch. You know, like the third rail in a subway that's got the electricity. I got to be careful because... I just did it. I touched it. When I think about how wicked I am and how much he loved me when I was just ready to spit in his face, that's love. That's love. I didn't choose him. He chose me. Jesus gave me spiritual eyes to help me see my sin and my hopeless state. And then look, look, he broke my chains of sin that I was guilty of By forgiving me of my sin. I didn't have to stay in that sin. Please understand. Not only can Jesus set you free from the chains of sin. That hold you guilty. And headed for hell. And separation from God. He can and also break those addictions. Those habits. That hold many Christians in this room right now. You think you're still held by those sins. But you've been set free. You can follow Jesus. The patterns of sin that plague your life, you can be set free from those. There's people in this church that could tell you story after story, their own testimony. How sin that held them fast in a dark place, hopeless, they've been set free from by by Jesus. They were given sight. And then to be given not only forgiveness of sin, but also given the righteousness of God. We call that imputation. That God inputs, imputes the righteousness of Jesus' life into your account. So that we can be adopted as children of God. Accepted, loved as a a daughter, as, as a son because of the sacrifice of Jesus. There's a song that my brother Ted taught me. Uh, It was written by a preacher, Charles Wesley. 
It beautifully catches this idea of being set free from the bondage of sin. It's a tearjerker. Talking about grabbing that third rail here. It's a tearjerker for me because it reminds us of how we were set free. Now I'm going to attempt to sing this. Just one verse from it. It's a little old style. It's an old, old hymn. The words are not updated for you. So you have to kind of understand the words a little bit. I put the words up here on the screen. A screen. It goes like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Love that song. We love that. So again, to our question. This is for believers in the crowd. Listen up. When the Messiah comes, will he provide us with more true spiritual freedom than Jesus has done? Sin. Our sin. Sin has the effect of breaking our hearts, doesn't it? I don't mean to be shallow at all on this. Sin's results break us at the heart level. And we see it all over the world, don't we? We see it in our families. People living with broken hearts. It's why you see abuse of alcohol so much. It's because of broken lives. It's so people can forget the pain for a little while. To numb the feeling of hurt. As a pastor of the years I've had really a front row seat to so many broken lives, broken hearts. I've seen firsthand the regret of old men that have said, man, they've lived their life and they have no purpose at, as they're dying. Their hearts are broken. They said, no matter what I accomplished, it didn't fill that hole. I've seen behind the scenes with wives who have said to their husbands, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I want someone else. I want to be happy for myself. I've seen men say to their wives, I found someone better looking than you. I'm leaving. I witnessed addictions take so many lives. I've seen parents lose children. Children lose parents. Hearts broken. I've seen children raised in the church by loving godly parents. And the children leave home and they go, I don't want any more of your God stuff. Or of you. I've seen the worst of the worst sexual abuse. I've seen rape. I've seen pedophilia. I've seen broken hearts from all these and many, many more. It's enough to make a lot of pastors cynical and they just throw in the towel. There's just so much brokenness. But you know what I've also seen? I've seen Jesus heal the brokenhearted. Time after time, I've seen marriages that were unfixable become great God-honoring marriages. 
I've seen addictions. I've seen habits broken. I've seen mean, ugly people become sweet and kind and caring with the love of Jesus. And I've seen people be able to forgive other people and begin to forgive themselves. And I've seen what Satan intended as evil and destruction. I've seen Jesus come in and heal broken hearts. And I've seen God use that evil and destruction for his good. I mean, their good and his glory. I've seen that firsthand. You see, there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. There is healing for your broken hearts. Do we deserve forgiveness from our sin? No way. But Jesus gives us that grace for all those who would believe in him as Savior and Lord. So let me just end with this. Will you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If you do, why don't you turn your life over to his care and give up being in control of your life? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, as I grab that rail of thinking how bad my sin was and your forgiveness of healing healing me of that, breaking the chains. God, I think of my brothers and sisters that I see the faces of the people that I love. This church, <coughs> Bent Tree Church, you have made them alive. Thank you. And God, for those that are believers but they're wrestling with temptation and sin, God, help them rest in your forgiveness and help them repent of their sin right now. Help them to become that holy and blameless person that you are making them into. Thank you for giving them that deliverance. And God, for those that don't know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Give them sight. Come into their dungeon of darkness. Show them the awfulness of their sin and help them to turn to you for the forgiveness of that sin. We thank you for your love for us. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.